Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Both the U.S. and China appear to be hardening their stance when it comes to trade negotiations. To get the latest and give some insight, uh, we are very pleased to say uh, we have Professor Robert Lawrence joining us now. He is the Albert L. Williams Professor of Trade and Investment at the JFK School of Government at Harvard University. He's also a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Uh, Professor Lawrence, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start with you just coming back from China, a trip you were on. What's your impression of just how intractable both sides are becoming? Is this just a trade negotiation or is this a material shift and a break in a potential uh, deal between the U.S. and China? Well, I think things are getting much worse than they were. I think even when I was there just a week ago, the Chinese seemed hopeful that some kind of a deal could be uh, concluded. But by the end of the trip, that's a few days ago, uh, their tone changed completely and, uh, and they got much more angry about what's happened. So, Professor, I think the last time you're on, you suggested that perhaps tariffs have been President Trump's goal all along. Is that still your thinking? Well, he's, uh, yes, I, I still think um, he sees a great upside in tariffs. Um, he, I think, has two goals. The first is to protect uh, the United States economy and um, through import uh, barriers. And then he also wants to discourage firms who, bring, who go offshore and bring their products back to the U.S. And I think that's achieved by having tariffs. So I've always been a little suspicious about these negotiations um, and his willingness to conclude a deal uh, because I think ultimately um, he, he said this for many years, uh, that, 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 that that was his objective. So based on your experience uh, with China, with the U.S., with what you've been hearing from people in Washington, D.C., how much further away from a deal are we? What's the, what's the likelihood of there being some sort of deal, even cosmetic, reached within the next six months? Well, I... <laughs> I don't know. Um, to be honest, uh, it's very hard to tell. Um, I think Washington, the people who advised President Trump and he himself seem quite uh, divided in their opinions. There are some who want China completely to change its, its economic system and its way of supporting firms to cut back on the subsidies and, and, and change the, the nature of its economic system. And I don't think China is going to do that. If those people have the upper hand, I don't see us getting an agreement. On the other hand, there are others who think, you know, if we can get something on intellectual property protection, on the transfer of technology, you know, where they're forcing our firms to, to transfer technology, and an agreement to buy more of our products, that that's the possible package that um, the president might be willing to accept. So, so I think it's ultimately, are, are, you, um, are you really intent, is the United States really intent on getting China to change its fundamental economic system? Well, I don't think that's going to happen. And we'll be in this intractable um, uh, rivalry and, and friction for a long time. If, so, on the other hand, it's a deal, 
you know, of the kind I outlined, that's feasible. So, Professor, what do you, again, you were just in China about a week ago, you mentioned, what do you think the Chinese believe is a reasonable deal? Well, I think um, it has to do with, um, uh, they, they the, 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 the refrain I keep hearing from the Chinese is that um, they're opening. Uh, they're doing gradually, but their economy is becoming increasingly open. So I, I think they're willing to take some measures on intellectual property uh, to to do more. I mean, to 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 be more restrained in 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 trying to force the transfer of technology, and I say to buy uh, more products from the United States. I think those are uh, I think those are things they're willing to do. Um, I, I don't think they're willing to change their um, their big programs in a fundamental way. Professor, there is sort of some speculation that's starting to percolate uh, that China is dramatically hardening its line and is going to see or examine how much pain it can inflict on the U.S. economy in order to stymie President Trump's chances of getting elected again. Are you hearing anything about that? I mean, is that a game that they're willing to play? Well... I think they talk a tough game, but but my analysis is that they're more adversely affected than we are, and that they're very vulnerable. Um, China's whole economic strategy has been based um, so far on assembling products, uh, you know, where the components come in from other countries, uh, including the United States. And uh, what these tariffs do is to make it very unattractive to produce your products in in China. And so I, I think this is a, a fundamental, you know, their long-run strategy is to become leaders in, in, in technology, but they're not there yet. So, so I think currently uh, this is going to fundamentally weaken um, uh, a lot of the investment plans of companies uh, in China. And so, so I think they're quite vulnerable. Uh, they they talk a tough game, and they are going to uh, try to offset some of the negative effects that come through trade, you know, with more expansionary fiscal policy and encouraging more lending uh, to their firms. Um, but uh, the Chinese regard six percent as kind of an ex- or six point four percent actually as a kind of an acceptable growth rate, and I think they're going to have trouble achieving that. So, Professor, what do you think China's next steps will be here? Um, I think, uh, you know, I'm not party to the, to the details of the negotiation. Um, I think if, uh, if they, if they can't be a settlement, uh, you know, between the presidents, um, we're in for a long period of, of, of friction. Uh, I, I, I think, I think they still want to attract foreign investment and, and not only American. Uh, and I so I, I don't see them taking more steps than what they've already put on the table. Um, uh, I, I think they're going to play this one um, very cautiously uh, because I think they're vulnerable. Right. Robert Lawrence, uh, thank you so much. Uh, Robert Lawrence, Albert L. Williams, professor of trade and investment at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. Also uh, a senior fellow at the Peterson Inter- Institute for International Economics.
There has been growing urgency around the plastics problem that the globe faces. Certainly a lot of publicity around the incredible amount of plastic trash uh, in the oceans, elsewhere. The question is, what do you do with this? And our next guest has a a really practical and potentially lucrative way to do that. Martin Stefan, Deputy Chief Chief Executive Officer of Carbios. It trades on Euronext under the ticker symbol ALCRB. It is based in France. Uh, Martin joins us here, though, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios in New York. Uh, Martin, just first, can we talk a little bit about what your company, Carbios, does? Yeah, sure. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, You know, plastic is still fantastic. But uh, the end of life of plastic has not been thought enough. And uh, Carbios has developed processes for the end of life of plastics. And we have in particular a process to infinitely recycle PET plastics by uh, using a special uh, catalyst. We are able to uh, use any kind of PET plastic waste to make any kind of PET. What is PET? PET is the plastic which is used to make bottles, transparent food containers, for example, or also fibers, textile. It's uh, produced uh, probably 70 million tons per year out of the 350 million tons of plastics which are produced every year over the world. So it's huge. It's a big, uh, it's a big commodity. Huh? So what, what specifically... Well, let's go the other way. See, I know a lot of the big uh, beverage companies have been thinking about this issue for a long time, the people who actually use the packaging in their business, whether it's Coca-Cola or water companies. So I know you, your company has recently partnered with Pepsi uh, and Nestle Water. Talk to us about that partnership and, and kind of how they are thinking about it. Yeah, Carvios announced uh, two weeks ago um, a consortium of brand owners, uh, brand owners who dis- had uh, agreed to help us to bring this technology to the market, to accelerate, let's say, the time to market of the technology. Why did they accept to do that? Because they need technologies like ours. They need Carbios technology to be able to produce more volumes of recycled material to meet their sustainability goals huh? because they have all committed to uh, use more recycled plastics in their packaging. But it's just that the technologies which are today on the market cannot reach those goals. So there is a need of new technologies to produce more recycled plastics at higher quality. So, and that's where that's where Carbios comes into play. How much more economic is it to use Carbios' uh, technology? Because that's been one drawback to some of the others. It's expensive. Well, Carbios technology is not expensive. And based on our projection, today we are still at small scale. Huh? But based on projection made by us and by engineering firm, we are convinced that the process has the potential to produce PET plastics at the same cost than petrochemical process. Why? Because it's low temperature, uh, we use water, it's atmospheric pressure. So I don't want to enter into too much details, but uh, it has the potential to, uh, to be at parity with petrochemical process. So why we've been throwing plastic bottles in recycling bins for years now, um, yet the problem still seems to be as big or bigger than ever. I mean, I see this huge area of the Pacific Ocean where there's just tons and tons of plastic. What, what has really been the hindrance for an effective recycling of plastics? Yeah, you're perfectly right. Uh, out of the 350 million tons of plastic produced every year, the best estimate today is that 10 million end up in the ocean, which is not acceptable. Huh? What we say that we, uh, by giving value to wastes, which today have no value or low value because we are able to recycle any kind of PET waste, so we give value to wastes, we turn the tap off. 
and uh, there will no there will no there will not be any uh, any plastic in the ocean anymore huh? that's that's the solution huh? and one of the problems is that uh, since those ways have uh, low value they end up in the environment or they are landfilled or they are incinerated huh? but if if uh, as of tomorrow you are able to give a value to a waste which today has no value it will end up in a bin and then will be recycled I'm just struggling to understand how quickly we can get to that point where we really just continually reuse plastics and how committed, you know, you talk about Pepsi and Nestle and how they've they've committed to your company, but how much are they actually spending and how much are they actually doing to expedite this process? They are very committed because they receive a lot of pressure from consumers, from governments, from NGOs. And they want to participate to finding a solution. And that's why they have accepted to put their reputation, their expertise at our disposal to accelerate the time to market of Carbios technology. And I can tell you that uh, we wanted in the consortium uh, companies who really, really want to work with us, not only uh, communicate, but we want people to work. We want their expertise. We want their reputation. Because even if we are extremely ambitious, we are only 20 people in the middle of France. So it's difficult to influence uh, regulators, for example. Huh? So we need those big guys with us. So geographically, where, just generally speaking about plastic waste, geographically, where does most of the waste come from? Uh, it comes from the, where it is consumed. So where there is population, huh, basically. So you can say that in Western countries, collection is relatively well organized. Recycling, not that well, but uh, it will improve with technologies like us. In less developed countries, uh, collection is less organized. And, uh, you know, there is a scientific paper saying that uh, the source of pollution of plastics in the environment comes from mostly five rivers. Huh? And it's neither the Mississippi River nor the Rhine River. Huh? It's the big rivers in uh, Asia and Southeast Asia. Martin Stefan, thank you so much for joining us. Martin's the deputy CEO of Carbios. Trades on the Euronext under the ticker symbol ALCRB, based in France, but joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uber shares back on the downside. They are uh, declining by one and a half percent today. This comes after Amazon announced that it was acquiring Deliveroo. Joining us to talk about why this might mean that it will eat Uber for dinner, as our colleagues wrote, is Alex Webb, European technology columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us uh, from Zurich today. Alex, thank you so much for being with us. So why is Amazon's purchase of Deliveroo so bad for Uber, in your opinion? Well, for one, it, it recapitalizes one of its bigger, biggest competitors. There had been some hope um, at, at both Uber and, of course, its local rival, Just Eat, that um, gradually, Deliveroo would struggle to raise new capital, and that would give them a greater hold on the market and be able to push at their prices. This is going to stop that. But there are broader strategic reasons why a tie-up between Amazon and Deliveroo, if it extends to more than just this, this venture capital investment, would make a lot of sense. Namely, that Uber, uh, well, any delivery firm is trying its utmost to ensure that its deliverers uh, are being utilized to their full capacity. Now, if you're delivering food for Deliveroo, as well as products for Amazon Prime, that boosts that um, utilization rate and helps you, um, you know, to generate a lot more profit from them. 
So, Alex, the food delivery business here in the U.S. is extraordinarily competitive. Give us a sense of kind of the competitive layout in the U.K. and Europe. Who are the big players there? And is this investment by Amazon into Deliveroo, is that really a game changer? I think it is a game changer in a lot of ways, particularly if it leads to those sort of synergies to which I just alluded. Um, But in most markets, you have essentially three main players and a couple of other ones nipping around the edges. Um, It's Uber Eats and Deliveroo um, in a lot of the most significant markets, not least London. Um, There's Just Eat, which is in the UK and in some of those foreign markets. Just Eat's model is slightly different. Whereas Uber Eats and Deliveroo have their own network of deliverers, what Just Eat does is it connects the, the the diner to the restaurant, and the restaurant t- deals with the delivery themselves. They have their own guys on a moped or whatever it might be. Um, in Germany, there's a company called Delivery Hero, and in the Netherlands, there's a company called Takeaway.com. Between them, they own vast tracts of, of the business throughout the west, rest of Europe. In fact, Delivery Hero sold out some of its business in Germany, meaning that Takeaway.com owns something like 90% of all of the online delivery market in Germany. So you know, there are a lot of players in that space. Alex, I want to take a step back because uh, one reason why this was such a hit to Uber, at least that was the common line uh, today in markets, is because this was one of the brightest spots of potential growth for Uber. Where are these food delivery services getting their money? Because I know that in New York City, everybody expects to get their food quickly and for free. And there is a question of how much people are going to eat out, especially if the economy starts to turn down. So uh, who's paying them? How much? And, and how lucrative can this business really be? That is the huge question mark, and I don't think there is an easy answer. You know, I did a column on this a few weeks ago ahead of the Uber IPO. Um, ultimately, at the moment, every single delivery, every single meal is subsidized by Uber's investors and by delivery's investors. Uber, in their IPO prospectus, said they have subsidized in a, on a net basis every single delivery, every single food delivery they've ever made. Um, ultimately, at some stage, either they're going to have to charge um, diners more, or they're going to have to take more margin out of the restaurants. The restaurants, if that happens, they can say, well, in that case, we're going to stop using these delivery networks. The um, diners, on the other hand, say, well, if I'm having to pay over the odds for the meal, I'm just going to go and collect it or cook myself. The one possible solution out there is what they call dark kitchens. That's where you have um, what is often a shipping container with a kitchen in it that's not attached to a physical restaurant, even though it may carry the branding of a restaurant that does exist. Um, the risk for a restaurant like that is you're giving all of the control of that process over to um, Uber Eats, Deliveroo, whoever it might be, but it's a way of keeping your costs down and therefore it would be a way, you know, therefore you can charge more to the, you can generate more margin, which you can split between the restaurant and the, um, you know, the delivery uh, marketplace. Now, that model remains untested, but there are a lot of people backing it. Boy, this sounds increasingly complex for these delivery companies to try to figure out an economic model that works. What do you think Uber Eats will do in response, Alex? I mean, as ever, when, whenever there's a new competitor, they tend in, whether it's in um, food delivery or in ride hailing, they double down with the subsidies. They fight to get more, to get more um, uh, business, to, to win more market share. That, to me, is absolutely not sustainable. As I'm sure anyone out there who uses ride hailing services, you open your phone, you compare the prices, you go which, with whichever one is cheapest. Brand loyalty is something that's hard to achieve here. Um, I, I think the, the, the thing that is so compelling about a possible Amazon delivery tie-up 
is it creates a more sustainable business case. And that is what Uber is going to be butting up against until it can come up with its own last mile delivery service for more than food. Right. Um, I think that that's going to be a real challenge. Alex Webb, thank you so much. Uh, great stuff. Alex is European technology columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, joining us from Zurich today, and it just kind of goes to the issue I think Alex raised is not just about the food delivery, but also just about the ride hailing. It's just the subsidies you have. When do you bleed people off the subsidies? Well, rising tariffs and the apparent collapse of U.S.-China trade talks have injected a new level of volatility into financial markets. To get a sense of how the commodity markets are reacting, we turn to Will Rind. Will is a founder and CEO of Granite Shares based in New York City via Aberdeen, Scotland, of all places. We welcome uh, Will to the studio. Will, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start with gold here. Um, what is your sense? I'm just looking at gold here. It's at you know $12.76 uh, an ounce. What is your view of gold, given all of the uncertainty in the macro geopolitical environment we're dealing with? Great question. And thank you. It's good to be here again. Um, I think when it comes to gold, you know, one of the key things um, that I think investors need to be aware of is the strength of the dollar. And so, you know, when you have um, trade talks such as uh, U.S.-China apparently collapsing or at least breaking down and not being as certain as people thought a few weeks ago, that kind of manifests itself in terms of a stronger dollar. And a stronger dollar is negative typically for gold, at least in the short term. I think the positive thing for for gold is that um, market volatility more broadly um, is typically positive for gold. And if there are expectations on the back of trade talks uh, collapsing that we're going to have slower global growth, um, negative real um, or lower real interest rates are positive for gold. And I think with people talking about the Fed potentially cutting, um, that is positive for gold. Although if we look at gold prices this year, they've slumped, which is surprising given the fact, uh, well, it's not surprising for the first couple months because there was that rally. But recently, the slump has continued and prices have continued to go down, even though the dollar hasn't rallied that much. Like, yes, it has rallied, but the uncertainty in some sectors has outweighed that. So why isn't there more of a bid for gold? It, it's a great question. And you know, this always comes up. And I think if you go back to the end of last year, when you had the, the huge uh, market sell-off, and of course, gold did catch a bid, a pretty significant bid. Um, in the end of last year, and the beginning of this year, we had the Fed news at the end of January, um, which was signaling a change in policy direction in terms of interest rate rises for the year, which is also positive. But then on the back of that, you had you know, a big comeback, this big V-shaped um, recovery in the equity market and a big rally in risk on assets, which did affect gold negatively. Um, the trade talks uh, and, and indeed the kind of breakdown in trade talks at the moment um, is negative in the sense that it's manifesting itself in a more strong or a stronger dollar. Um, but I do think that the, the late cycle um, sort of trade right now is, is still positive for gold. And we've seen at least investors um, positioning themselves that way, being more defensive and more defensive typically means an allocation to gold. Well, one of the commodities that I know you're familiar with that certainly benefited, you know, really since December is oil. I'm looking at WTI yeah. up, you know, almost 50% off of its December low. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of geopolitical issues there, whether it's Iran and other areas. What is your view of oil at the moment? Um, yeah, so it was it was very positive, um, and you know there was a big overshoot on the downside in oil coming into the end of last year, 
And that was sort of against the backdrop where we'd seen um, supply being reduced. Everybody knows about what's going on in Venezuela um, in terms of the this really going offline in terms of oil production and that effect that's out of the market. But with the Iranian sanctions, that also took you know, oil off the market. And the Saudis looking to avoid mistakes um, that they made in the past by oversupplying the market when others were, were cutting supply. So all of that led into a tighter supply environment. And when um, the, the market went sort of risk on mode, um, that involved in a lot, of, a lot of demand and pushed prices up to levels that we've seen. Have you ever been this confused about the oil market before? Because I've got to say, I talk to people and some people say, well, you know, if this happens and this happens, prices will shoot higher. And other people say, eh, prices are capped. And then they're poised to shoot much lower. And there's really, it's everything across the board. So what's your view? Well, I think that there's some of that which is true. Um, And, you know, you get a a negative tweet about the oil market from the president and send prices lower. That's not baked in any kind of fundamentals. Um, that's pure sentiment. Uh, you get real geopolitical concerns um, that affect supply, which is a real thing. Um, Isn't that what we're seeing right now? I mean, yeah, is this absolutely. not real geopolitical concern? I, I think it, yeah. it absolutely is. And, you know, with what's going on, uh, particularly with uh, situations seem to be escalating between Iran and proxies in, in the Middle East, um, that almost certainly could affect uh, oil supply, uh, which would be a positive for the market. It's interesting. We had uh, earlier today uh, Amy Myers uh, Jaffe from the Council of Foreign Relations uh, on, and she made a very bullish case for oil. Uh, you know, assuming we had an Iran problem, an Iran disruption, her contention is OPEC can't really fill the void. Russia can't fill the void. It doesn't. We don't. We know that Venezuela can't fill the void. And she was making a very bullish call that the market is not properly discounting that the market that the rest of the non-Iran market can compensate for Iran. Is that something you think is reasonable? Um, I think that's true. Uh, The only caveat I would add to that is just that we've sort of seen this before, and typically that would manifest itself most likely in a short-term spike. But the global economy is weakening, and and this is is kind of the dichotomy that we face with the oil market. The short-term spike could very well happen. But it's hard to see, in my mind at least, how oil can get to the levels that we saw certainly back in 2007 or any kind of um, shock type levels, because it really leads to demand destruction. And so in, in, in a market or a global economy where you know, things are slowing down, it's hard to see prices remaining at a really elevated level because it, in my mind, would lead to demand destruction. So right now, WTI on the NYMAX traded at $63.10 a barrel. What's sort of the ceiling in your view, and what's the floor? Well, I think certainly if you look at the last kind of couple of years, it's been around $80 um, in terms of the ceiling. And so whenever we've got to that level or thereabouts, we've had a reaction and prices have pulled back. I think on the downside, although we've seen some you know pretty low prices, I think that sort of 40 to 45 dollars on the downside is also where the markets met resistance so on the upside um, there's been that sort of resistance around the 80 dollar level but on the downside as well probably somewhere in the in the 40s i know you run a couple of uh etfs focused on the commodity sector which is the most popular right now give you 30 seconds oh it's bar bar which is our gold etf so it just holds physical gold tracks the gold price um we just actually went over 500 million in assets um and assets have um they haven't doubled this year but have increased by probably well over a third 
And that's really on the back of people positioning for this late cycle trade. So being more defensive, uh, adding gold to the portfolio, people looking for non or uncorrelated asset classes. So since the beginning of the year, we've seen a big uptick, uptick in gold interest. Will Rind, thank you so much for being with us here. Uh, Will Rind is founder and chief executive officer of Granite Shares based in New York. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.